clear some space. There's a lot of stuff up here for me to trip over. Some of y'all are newer and were not here on the Sunday when I tripped and nearly fell off the stage. I'm pretty sure there's people in the room who root for me to actually manage that next time. Uh, <coughs> let's uh, let's uh, bow our heads. Let's pray. Let's prepare ourselves for the the message this morning. Let's bring ourselves into a place where we are uh, filled with with God's glory, with God's word. Heavenly Father, I pray that you'd be with us this morning. I pray that you'd uh, just be in our presence. Uh, speak to our hearts. Speak to our minds. Um, touch us just deep inside and break apart the stony ground and the the frozen bits. Like let let all all that stuff be melted away. Um, help us to focus on you and your son, drawing into your presence and knowing you like intimately and closely. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Oh, so uh, you should not be able to see anything on that camera right there. We are fiddling around with audio problems because uh, why not? Uh, I got new stuff showing up in the mail this week that we'll trade out and see if that fixes it. Uh, it is an ongoing fight. Uh, yeehaw. So... And it is a distraction. So I'm going to put that aside. And I'm actually going to take a quick minute to talk about Christmas trees. Uh, Show of hands, who has not put their Christmas tree up yet? All right. See that, Jesse? It's not that bad. (laughs) It is not just us. Uh, We are uh, sort of perpetually uh, in motion at my house. We are perpetually sort of trying to keep up, trying to catch up. And uh, things like getting the Christmas tree up are a big deal that are important for our kids and not something we're doing particularly well. Uh, But y'all are in the same boat, so all right. We can all be awful together. Um, This morning, actually, I was thinking about that, and my wife was frustrated yesterday. She was tired. She wasn't feeling great. I ended up sort of tied into a weird project here at the church, and I ended up being here almost all day. I also screwed up my back over the weekend, and I've been laying down an awful lot, uh, which is uh, a mixed blessing. Um, and, and I said to my wife, I'm like, honey, we should try and get the kids together and get the tree up. And it just did not happen yesterday. And I, I, my wife was frustrated, and I, the Titus asks every five minutes if we're going to put the Christmas tree up today. And, and it's sort of this rolling thing. And, and as I was thinking about trees, I decided to research Christmas trees. Um, There is an internet uh, thing, like a Reddit conversation, where they accuse Christianity of being sort of a knockoff of all these different pagan religions, and that uh, originated in the 1800s, and most of it is really fictitious. Um, One of the popular things you hear about Christmas trees is that Christmas or Christians stole the tree from pagan celebrations during the Roman Empire when the Christianity became the official faith of the Roman Empire in like four something eighty. Uh, I might be wrong on the date, as general as it was, uh, but that like they incorporated all this pagan stuff so that the pagans would be okay with Christians being there. And uh, the tree is one of those things. Like it's associated with uh, about a hundred different groups in the course of history. Actually, all over the world, people have used evergreen trees or spruces for different symbolic things and celebrations. But the Christmas tree as we use it did not show up until the 16th century. And it was the Germans who brought it about. Isn't that crazy? I'm half German, and I will proudly say uh, we do everything. 
Um, all right, I can't see my slides, though, and I can't move them if I can. Okay, you're fixing it. Okay. Uh, but originally, uh, these German, like, religious people looked at the tree, and they said, well, wait a minute, look at that. It's triangle-shaped. And triangle, like, has three points, right? And that reminds us of? The Trinity, the three persons of the Godhead. And then they looked and they said, well, it's green all year round. It's always alive. And they said, well, wait a minute. When we celebrate Christ, we celebrate the crucifixion and the resurrection and the everlasting life. And so it's similar in that way. And then they said, well, wait a second. It's like a triangle and it's a little like an arrow. What direction does the arrow point? Heavenward. And if you get up really close and you start looking at the leaves, right, there are no leaves. They're needles, and that sort of reminds us of the crown of thorns. And they kept going and going and going and going. And as it turns out, Christmas trees loaded with symbolism. Um, and in fact, actually, I, I read conflicting accounts this morning. The Moravians, which were a German uh, Christian Protestant group, or possibly Martin Luther, were the first to put lights on trees. Isn't that nuts? Like uh, candles, specifically, because Germans always known for their care. Um, but originally it was candles, and later it was replaced with lights, and it was to represent light coming into the world, which in Matthew's Gospel, when you read about, like, the birth of Christ, it talks about, um, it quotes the, what's called the Great Commission of the Old Testament, a light has come to the world and become a shining light for those living in the land of darkness, and, and like, it's, it's this really powerful symbol when we put lights on the tree. All of these little things, like the star at the top, reminds us of... The, the star that led the wise men to Bethlehem. And, like, all of these cool things are there. But, honestly, I knew the star one, and I knew the arrow one. And that was it. Anybody know any of these before I started talking today? Um, teal. <laughs> Most of us didn't, though. You know why? Because the Christmas tree is the thing you got to put up, and it's better to get the plastic one because you don't have to water it. It doesn't catch fire, usually. And it's cheaper than buying a tree every year, probably. I have no idea. Um, and if you don't put it up, then the kids will be disappointed and you got nowhere to put your presents, right? And vacuuming, once you take it away, is awful. I once broke all of the church vacuum cleaners in an evening trying to take out a dead tree. I kid you not, nobody knew that until today. However, I did hear a bunch of people associated with maintenance say, man, I got that vacuum to work, but it was jammed with needles. My fault. Um, here's the trick. It only works as a symbol if, if, if we remember what it symbolizes. If we forget what it symbolizes, it becomes a thing we have to do. Um, the United Methodist Church, I, I uh, have worked for various Methodist agencies. One of their, their symbol, their primary symbol is a flaming cross. And a lot of times people don't realize that's a flaming cross. And when we think of flaming crosses, we think of really bad stuff. But originally, the flaming cross was the cross of Constantine, which was uh, when the Roman Empire converted to Christianity, uh, uh, Constantine held up a cross and he lit it on fire. And he said, in this sign you will conquer. And it was associated with the universalizing of the church, adoption as the primary religion in the world. And like it wasn't until millennia later that it became something horrible um, because symbols have their meaning like when we put them there. They're not inherent. They're there when, when we recognize it. And so for the rest of the month, all two weeks of it, can I use my slides now? Okay, I'm sorry I was like kind of <laughs> procrastinating there because I wanted to use my slides. But the rest of the month, when you look at your Christmas tree, 
take a second and stop and think, you know, that's there to remind me that Christ came to give me everlasting life. We put presents under it and give each other gifts because Christ gave us the best gift possible in Christ. Um, all of this is about, all of this is about Jesus. When it stops being about Jesus, it becomes a weird, silly custom we do. And it doesn't make any sense. The reason I'm starting there is because we're going to do our second half of John the Baptist. Our series is how to welcome a king. We're talking about how we as believers prepare ourselves for celebrating the birth of Christ. Are you raising your hand? Thank you for saving me from the holiday Oh, you're welcome. I, I, they chased me here, but I ditched them. Um, and so this week we're going to talk about let every heart prepare a room. I was very happy. TJ did joy to the world for me this morning. Uh, and, and the idea here is that we prepare. And with John the Baptist, the message, the story of John the Baptist, last week we talked about all of the Old Testament stuff, right? How John was kind of this culmination of the entire Old Testament system. And I pointed out, and I pointed out, I said it wrong like five times, and John reminded me that I said it wrong like five times. Um, John the Baptist was the last Old Testament prophet. He was not the last prophet. He was the last of the Old Testament prophets. He was the whole Old Testament coming together and pointing to Jesus, right? Like telling the story of how it all comes about and comes to an end, and Christ is like the result. And so um, this week we're going to look at who John was a little bit, and we're going to talk about um, how he points to Christ. Uh, So the series so far, we talked about how Christmas is a time to celebrate. We talked about this John the Baptist thing. And then this week, we're going to talk about preparing room, about recognizing that the stuff we do to prepare is about Jesus. It's about Jesus. It's about, like, remembering evergreen life, like everlasting life. It's about remembering the crown of thorns. It's about remembering the gift of God. Um, And so we're going to go back to Mark 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Um, Again, Mark is writing Peter's account of the life of Christ. And really quickly, he starts out his letter saying, this is the gospel. This is the story of our salvation. This is the good news. And then he's going to start talking about John the Baptist. And he's going to do something that ancient Jews did all the time. And I only just found out about this this year uh, during my sabbatical. So you guys are going to learn something that I learned that is awesome. Um, It's the idea of stringing pearls. Ladies, who would like a very nice piece of jewelry for Christmas? None of you? Awesome. Good job. Husbands, you've nailed it. Um, there, Abby, there's a can of uh, seltzer water on my desk. I don't know where you are. Oh, can you go get it for me? Thank you. Um, and to understand what the stringing pearls is, real quick, ancient Jewish people were educated. They were super, super educated. When people say, oh, you know, the Christian faith, like, it came about because of, like, ignorant shepherds and all that. That is really not the case. Like, the people who followed Christ, they were educated at a level that, like, most, like, Ph.D. students aren't now. Okay? For you to be a Jewish boy, sorry, ladies, uh, you would attend school, and during the first portion of your schooling, you would memorize the first five books of the Bible. I say memorize, I mean memorize. You would be able to recite it perfectly. And every Jewish person was expected to at least know the Torah by heart. If you went all the way through school, you memorized the first five books, all the rest of the books, and then you memorized uh, the Talmud, which is basically an encyclopedia. Okay, like I'm not kidding. It is an encyclopedia of 
commentary on the Bible. And so you would know all of this stuff by heart. So when you're preaching a sermon to a crowd of people that already know everything, you have to come up with stuff to make it a little deeper and a little chunkier. And that's where stringing pearls comes along. The rabbis would teach, but what they would do is they would take bits of scripture verses and tack them together. And so they would say one sentence, and it would be like three or four scripture verses all together. And everybody in the audience would immediately know, because they knew it by heart, they would immediately know, oh, that's from Exodus. That's from Isaiah. That's from Malachi. And then, because they knew those things by heart, those three words that were taken out of the Exodus passage, everything around it comes in. And what you would do, because there was no TV, right? I know it sounds horrible. It was probably better. Um, Jewish people understood that they would, that they would, like at meals, they would sit down and they would discuss these strings of pearls. And they'd be like, hey, you know what that Mark guy said it's from this and this and this. And then somebody else would be like, oh, and I caught this. And then they would discuss it. And that's what meals would be like. And actually, there was a rabbi who said where two or more are gathered at a meal and discussing the Torah, God is with them. Does that sound familiar? Because Jesus was actually speaking in the context of his culture. And there's a whole lot of cool stuff that we can miss. So Mark's gospel is written by, uh, it was Peter's, Peter's account. Mark was probably John Mark, who was a Jew, right? And the audience is mostly Gentiles. So most of them get none of this. But the Jews and the God-fearers in the room would get it. And this particular text is quoted all over the place in the New Testament. I spilled soda on my thing. Now it won't turn pages. Nope, now I turn too many. So the next two verses here are a string of pearls. Watch this. As it is written in Isaiah, the prophet, Behold, I will send a messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, preparing the way, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight his path. Now, for the Gentile audience, these guys who were raised and educated in Greek schools, to say, to quote someone this way, to say, as it was written by dot, 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 was a really common beginning of an argument for ancient Greeks. The reason Jews had such great schools is because the Romans forced everybody to go to Greek schools. And all of these good Jewish moms are like, my kid ain't going to a Greek school. So they started their own <laughs> homeschooling. Homeschool. Yes, I, sorry, that was, I should be careful. I be Quiet, boy. Hey, go sit in the back. Go sit by mom. Nope, 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 nope. It'll take care of itself. Go. Um, So, as it is written, this is the front end of an argument. Behold, my message. So, this is actually three verses kind of glued together. Now, watch this. Um, Here's the string of pearl. First off, this quote is attributed to Isaiah, but it's actually not Isaiah incomplete. It's actually the string of pearls. um, And I said all this already. the Jews and the God-fearers would have gotten it. And so there's a lot of weight to this. And as these Christians were studying the scriptures, they would have come across these lines in other places. Everybody with me? So the first pearl on this string is probably not a direct quote, but an illusion, not an illusion, an allusion um, to a line in Exodus. Right. Uh, Exodus for the Jewish people. The story of the Exodus is the story of God delivering them from slavery. Everybody with me? 
Like, and Moses and the story of the Exodus is the defining moment of their culture. If you go and you look at every Jewish example of like a ceremony or a meal or like a time that they would gather, uh, I'm going to try and talk John into doing a Seder meal this year. Uh, on the Thursday before Easter, and we'll talk about all the symbolism because they remember over and over again, we shed tears in the desert. God gave us water in the desert. He led the way for us. He was hidden and we found him, like all of these symbols. And so like, like these guys, they would know the moment you said, I will send an angel. This is my quote. Sorry, I'm going to, golly. Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place I have prepared. Pay attention, or pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgressions, for my name is in him. Um, what do we do with that? Well, we recognize that like any Jewish hearer, anybody who is hearing the story about John the Baptist would recognize that they are in the wilderness, which by the way, when you get to the part where it talks about John's ministry, John didn't minister in the neighborhood. He didn't minister just outside of town. He went to the worst place in the world and preached. And people had to travel to get there, like days to go hear John the Baptist preach. And it was, it was a desert. And actually the river, the Jordan River in spots, it's like two inches deep. Um, like it is not a nice place to go. But every Jew in the room would say, wait a second, this is the wilderness and there's somebody sent before. Let's see if I can see my text again. Um, yeah, so like, like they would think of this angel thing. They would think of it. It would automatically come up, and they would start saying, well, wait a minute. Is God going to lead us out of captivity? Is God going to be rescuing us from something? Is God sending somebody before us? And John the Baptist was kind of a rock star because of things like this. In fact, until about... I, until about 30 years ago, there was a religion that specifically followed John the Baptist. Like, there were like 20,000 adherents still, and these people were devoted to John the Baptist still. John the Baptist was so much, he was such a big deal, that like the religious authorities were scared of him. And even when they didn't like him, they wouldn't say anything because the people wouldn't put up with it. Um, John the Baptist was terrifying to the king, and he was actually able to openly talk bad about the king, and eventually the king reluctantly uh, arrested him but didn't want to do anything to him because he was scared of him. And he cuts his head off because of a really weird and gross story that we're not going to talk about today. Um, but understand, like the Jewish people looked at John and they're like, this is the angel in the desert leading us back. Um, so this first pearl, uh, as it shows up here, right? This, behold, I send my messenger before your face. Um, the big idea here, I am just not going to have slides, uh, this is going to really make this more challenging. Um, the big idea here is someone's going in front of you. Someone is going in front of you who is going to take you out of captivity, take you out of the rotten place you've been stuck in, and you're going to go somewhere else. Um, why is this important? It's important because uh, John the Baptist, right, as the guy who shows up, as the guy who points the way like the Christmas tree, right, basically a big arrow pointing to heaven, John's job was to go ahead and, and tell people, like, guys, it's coming. Here it is. And when you get into his ministry, his primary role is to point and say, there he is. Right? It's kind of funny, actually. His whole life led up to that one moment. That's him. Right there. That's him. Can you bump my slide forward, whoever's back there? 
By the way, we've been using this slide setup for years now, and I cannot believe it's going to betray me today. <laughs> the second pearl here is from Malachi 3.1. Now, real quick, Malachi is the very last of the Old Testament prophets, and he is right there at the front end of 300, 400 years of silence from prophets. Like, nothing happens. But there's a whole lot of national, like, ups and downs. Alexander the Great comes along and conquers Israel. They're under the, like, the boot of Persian impression for a while. And they, actually, they've got a guy who is basically like the prototype Messiah who shows up and takes them out of, oh my gosh, it stopped working again. Um, and takes them out of their oppression and leads them to freedom. Then Alexander the Great conquers them, and the Romans conquer them, and there's all this stuff that happens. And they're, excuse me, asking themselves, where's God? Why isn't God rescuing us? Where's God at? And there were no prophets showing up, just silence from God. And they had to be wondering, what's the deal, God? Where are you at? Are you coming? Are you going to rescue us? Are you going to say something? And so, like, Malachi is a rock star. He is a big deal. Um, and every, every good Jew knew this book backward and forward because Malachi is one of the big prophets other than Isaiah who points to the fact that God is sending someone to rescue the people over and over and over again. He says these things and people are like, yeah, Malachi, somebody's coming. He's going to kick the butts of the bad guy and everything else. Like, and so then the quote that's here, right? Like this is Malachi 3, 1. Actually, I think I quoted a little more than that. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to the temple in the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Now, behold, I send my messenger who will prepare the way for me. Right? That's the quote. You look at John uh, at Mark one to three here. Behold, I will send a messenger before your face, and he will prepare the way. What does that mean? Okay, if I was a king, right, or really famous, I might have something like an entourage. Y'all are familiar with this concept? These are all the people who kind of hang on like the moray fish that hang off of sharks, and like enjoy your fame. You would have one guy who was a herald. You know what the herald did? He did not hark, and he did not sing. But he would go in front of you and say, glory to the king. That was off the cuff, man. That was great, right? Uh, <laughs> he would go on ahead of you and he'd be like, guys, the king is coming. Get ready. And people would get ready because the king was coming. They would get their houses ready in case the king needed something. They'd come out and bow down when he went by. They'd lay their coats or palm leaves on the ground so that his like, horse, his war horse, wouldn't touch the ground. They would get ready. And that's what the herald would do, and that's what's being described here. A herald going out and saying, guys, put on your best clothes. The king is coming. The boss, the man, he is coming. And that's what John the Baptist does. Oh, my goodness. I'm just going to talk directly off of my slides, and it'll either show up there or it won't. How's that? Everybody cool? Because I am getting lost here, and I hate that. Um, so this second pearl... Um, and why is it significant? First off, last prophet. I said that a minute ago. There's this long prophetic silence. By the way, what happened to John the Baptist's dad right before he was born? Do you guys remember this from last week? His dad was a guy named Zechariah. He was in the temple doing his temple duty once in a lifetime. And his dad is there and an angel shows up and says, hey, your wife, 
you know, even though you are both like in your 60s, you're going to have a child. Any doubts? And the angel says, look, because you doubted me, you don't get to talk again until the baby is born. And so Zechariah is silent for the nine months. And I'm sure the wife loved that because I'm quite certain having had two children come into my home that we say way too much during the pregnancy. Any amens from the ladies? So, or at least I do, but I say too much all the time. Um, And so there's this period of prophetic silence, and it's about to be broken by John. In the same way, his father was silent, and the very first thing he does when he starts talking is he gives a prophecy about Jesus. Kind of cool. Because this story is loaded with this stuff, because the whole story of the birth of John points to the birth of Jesus coming. It's all about what's coming next. Um, he's associated with a swell of messianic expectation, meaning everybody's waiting for the Messiah. He'll be here soon. It's like kids. How many of you guys get a new Christmas list every day from your children right now? How many of you throw the catalogs away when they show up in the mail? I don't even get catalogs. I didn't think they were a thing anymore. But the kids still get them, right? Like somehow they come out of nowhere. I remember when I was a kid and you'd get the Sears catalog. It was like a, it was like a phone book. And you'd go through and you'd circle everything and, you know, Red Rider, BB gun and all that other stuff. Like, like these people were excited and they were in expectation that God was coming. And if you look at the second half of that, the Lord that you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant. Um, I know that by heart because it's in Handel's Messiah. It's one of my favorite pieces of classical music. They sing that line. It's beautiful. Um, but that's the story of Christ coming on a donkey into the east gate of the temple like the week before he was crucified. Um, Because all of this stuff is glued together. It's all on purpose. Last week we talked about how we should wonder at this design, at this awesome thing. Um, This week we're talking about the fact that if we're going to wonder at God's plan, wonder at the fact that it's an arrow, a giant flashing neon light arrow pointing at Jesus pointing at the crown of thorns, pointing at the everlasting life that is coming, pointing the light that's coming into the world, all of it. Finally, and this is weird, some of y'all may not know about Elijah. Elijah in the Old Testament is like the face of the prophets. He is another rock star, right? He would be like the Keith Richards of of Old Testament prophets because he never died. Um, He actually doesn't die in the Old Testament. God takes him up in a chariot of fire. And because of that, Jews had begun discussing the idea that, wait a minute, if Elijah never died, maybe he'll come back. Maybe God will send him back. And then in, I should have a slide for this, uh, in the uh, next chapter of Malachi, at the very last passage of the book, it says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day. Of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children, and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Now, there's actually an awful lot there. We can't do any of it. Uh, we can do a little bit. They're waiting for Elijah. When, when John the Baptist starts preaching, people come to him, and they're like, hey, are you Elijah? And actually, when somebody asks Jesus, Jesus says, hey, he's Elijah. He's not the man Elijah, but he's doing ministry in the spirit of Elijah. He is Elijah come again. This is it, people. It is D-Day. In particular, 
John didn't even put this off. Now, John, this is the next little section here. John was clothed in camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey, which is gross. Um, He preached, saying, After me comes one who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now, watch this. So John the Baptist shows up, and he's got an outfit on, and it's camel's hair. I don't know anything about camels or camel's hair, except I know their hair is coarse, and they spit a lot, and they're disgusting animals. They really, really are. Um, But he's wearing this outfit with a weird leather belt. What's up with that? Well, every Jew in the room looks and says, well, wait a minute. When we read Kings about the story of Elijah, we come across this passage. The king asked them, what kind of man was it who came to meet you and told you this? And they replied, he had a garment garment of hair and had a leather belt around his waist. And the king said, that was Elijah the Tishbite. Um, So what's going on there is, so like Elijah shows up and he dresses up like this prophet that everybody's waiting to come to tell about the Messiah. And it's kind of nuts. Everybody gets really excited about it. And they're like, I want to be baptized. Here's the other thing that's really cool. So baptism was common amongst ancient Jews. However, when you were baptized, you only got baptized if you were a Gentile converting to Judaism, right? You would be a follower of a Jew for a number of years. You'd be called a God-fearer. And then one day they'd say, you are ready to become Jewish. We're going to circumcise you. Trying to say that right. Uh, we're going to go ahead and circumcise you, and then you have to be baptized. And you would baptize yourself. You would go and you would cover yourself with this holy water. They kept in a special vessel. You'd wash yourself. And it was a sign of you taking, washing off the uncleanliness of your Gentile ways and becoming a Jew. John comes along and says, you know what? You Jews need to be baptized. Come be baptized. Wash yourself and be made right before God. And John is actually the first person to come along and baptize other people. And what he was telling people to do was be baptized and come back to the agreement you had with God. Come back to God. You're running out of time. And so he baptized people and encouraged them to repent and be ready because the Messiah is coming. And he says, I'm not even worthy to untie that guy's sandals. That's loaded with meaning because ancient ancient rabbis could have their disciples do anything. Go clean the bathroom. They'd have to do it, right? I don't think they have bathrooms. Um, you know, go, go get my lunch. Go do this. Go do that. But it was against the law for a rabbi to have a disciple untie his sandals for him because it was considered too lowly. And John's like, you know what? When God's chosen one, when this Messiah, this, this perfect Savior, the guy who's going to lead us to salvation, when he shows up, he's going to be so high and mighty that the lowliest job I'm not worthy to do. And so every Jew in the room reads it. Every Jew in the room sees it. Every Jew in the room says, wait a minute, Malachi. Wait a minute, preparing the way. Wait a minute, getting things ready. Wait a minute, God is coming. Last pearl, okay? And it looks like a lot, but I'm going to go through this one quick. Um, this is the last pearl in the string. This is one is from Isaiah. Isaiah was the biggest prophet, like longest book, said the most stuff. Astounding predictions. He actually named the general who would liberate Israel from captivity like 140 years before it happened. Wrote the guy's name in the prophecy. Just amazing, right? And he has all of these super accurate predictions about Christ or prophecies about Christ. And he wrote, comfort, comfort my people, 
says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries out in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. That's also in Handel's Messiah. I love that. Um, Every valley shall be lifted up, every mountain and hill made low, and the uneven ground shall become level, and even the rough places plain, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and flesh shall see it all together, for the mouth of the Lord is spoken. So an ancient Jew reading this is going to say, wait a minute, all this bad stuff that happened, it's all paid off, and God is going to come. God is going to send a messenger, and he's going to make everything right. And there's going to be a herald who's going to come in advance and say, guys, Get ready, he's coming, and every mountain will be made low. Have any of you guys ever climbed a mountain? It feels cool when you get to the top. Like, I've climbed a bunch of mountains. Like, it's awful. Like, mountain climbing is sort of exciting, but it is awful. Like, it is just uphill the whole way, and your legs hurt, and the air gets thin, and it's miserable, right? Like, it is hard. I, I, like, walking across rough country is hard, and it's miserable. I love being outside. I love pheasant hunting. But when you hunt pheasants and you shoot one and it falls in the thorn, bat, like, thorn, you know, patch, what do you do? You go get it unless you have a dog, and I don't. Um, so he's saying, listen, God's chosen one is coming. He's going to deliver us. He's going to save us. And he's going to make every difficult path we walk, basically, between us and God. He's going to make it all easy. And every Jew hearing this story, the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make his path straight. Every one of them is going to say, oh my gosh, this John guy, he's the herald. He's going to show up and announce it. God is coming. We don't have a herald. John the Baptist does not show up. You have me, and I'm hard to listen to because I talk too much and I never shut up. And it's all confused and all over the place and the slides don't work. But what we do have is things that believers before us have noticed and drawn in, like the tree, right? You guys are going to put your tree up sometime today, right? We're not. Um, My back hurts and Jess is sick, so we're not doing it. Um, It'll happen eventually. But when we put it up, we don't put it up because it's a chore to do. We put it up to remind us in Christ, in the Messiah, like God gives us the gift. He gives us the gift of everlasting life. We will never die. Those who've died before us will be alive again when we meet them in eternity. We will never get away from this. Like this is what God designed us for. We have to be like like overjoyed at this. Um, what else do we do with our string of pearls? First off, you now know what they mean, and you know what a string of pearls is. And so as you read the, the New Testament, you'll come across these and be like, hey, those, those are pearls. Um, also, be in wonder. When you look at the tree, I, I always had trouble. My Christmas is hard because like, I'm supposed to be all nostalgic and warm and squishy. You guys get that? I don't. Not at all. Nothing. I look at it, and I'm like, man, that was a lot of work, and I'll have to clean it up later. <laughs> Man, I hope I got another robe this year. Um, whatever it is, like, like it's just a lot. But then I look at it and I say, God designed the whole world to point to the birth of, of his son. Not just the birth of his son, the birth of one who will come and carry the sins I committed when I was the worst person I ever was. And he'll make me right again. And I have peace with God. Like, the war between me and God and me and my sin, like, will 
between me and my sin will end one day, but between me and God is over, and I'm friends with him now. It doesn't matter if nobody loves me. God loves me. Christ died for me. I can look at the tree and I can say, man, like, this is something that was picked on purpose. This is something that was chosen for a reason. This is something that reminds me of the beauty and the wonder of what God has done for me. Why Christmas isn't just a headache and a commercial holiday, but the story of God's Son coming for us. Be in wonder at that. Second thing here is recognize that Jesus came to deliver us from slavery. That's why we have these symbols. Um, If you talk to John, again, like John knows more about the Jewish faith than I'll forget in my lifetime. Or wait, he's forgotten more than I'll know in my lifetime. That's it. Uh, (laughs) Sorry. Um, Everything that the Jewish people did, what they made their clothes out of, how they designed them, how they would, like, wash their hands. It was all designed to remind them that they were taken out of slavery and brought to the promised land. Everything in Christmas is you're taken out of slavery to your sin. It's like taken out of fear of death. And it's all about Christ and heading to the promised land. That's awesome. And so through this season, prepare them room by making your heart right by recognizing what Christ has done for you, what God has done for you, what we're actually celebrating. Like, like make yourself ready for the day he comes. Uh, John's job was to act as a herald, to point people to this. Don't turn the symbols into something other than what they are, right? People wear gold crosses. This is my faith. No, it's not. It's a symbol of a way people used to get tortured to death. Once upon a time, it was considered cussing to say cross in, in certain companies. So if you would say cross... People were like, oh, he's using bad language. Can you believe that guy? And they made it their symbol. It was the most offensive, miserable, gross thing. If you read about crucifixion practices, they are unreal. Like, and some of the things they did to Christ, like I, I, last Easter I was digging into it, and I had to gather some guys up and say, am I nuts or is this what's happening here? Like, it is horrible. And we carry it around like a comfort thing or a pretty thing. But in reality, it's a reminder of what our Savior carried. All of these symbols only have value if we remember what they symbolize. If they become things unto themselves, we lose everything that matters. Finally, prepare in your heart, prepare in your family, prepare in your mind, like for the day that we celebrate the birth of God's Son, for the day that God's D-Day, right, where he shows up in the world to save us, to free us from oppression, to drag us out of our sin, to drag us out of our wickedness and our blindness and our, our anxiety and fear and everything else and make us right with God. And so Merry Christmas, guys. Go, go out of here today and prepare room for him. Not just putting up your tree. Putting up your tree as a symbol of what you're doing in your heart and in your life. Hanging up bells is a reminder of joy and celebration. Let's pray and I'll let you all go. Heavenly Father, I pray that you'd be with us today. I pray that despite technological errors and me getting stumbling over myself because my slides are messed up and everything else, Lord, that, that your spirit was with us, that people heard from you, that, that we came today to celebrate your son and his gospel. And I pray that you would help us to be people who live with, you know, with pearls hanging around our neck constantly, Lord, but, but let them be the pearls of the scripture. Let them be the, the truth and the glory of your son that show up in our lives and people look at us and say, man, I want what that guy has. Pray that you would be in our hearts, in our lives this season. In Jesus' name, amen.